Hello, welcome back to the Iowa Type Theory Commute. I am Aaron Stump, and we are in Chapter 3, as you know, talking about the Curry-Howard isomorphism, an amazing connection between logic and programming. And as we've been speaking about, under the Curry-Howard isomorphism, proofs, and particularly constructive proofs, although, as we'll discuss a little later, this also applies to non-constructive proofs, which is quite amazing. Proofs, constructive proofs, correspond to pure functional programs. We say pure, just as a reminder, we're talking about functional programs that don't have any side effects, like no hidden mutable state or this kind of thing. Um, and so the proofs correspond to programs, and the formulas that the proofs prove correspond to the types that the programs have. We talked the past couple times a bit about some of these different, the correspondences between the types and the formulas, and this time I want to talk a little bit about, or start talking a little bit about dependent types. Now, dependent types, um, from the programming perspective, you have a type, let's say, for example, the type of a function. Uh, say you wanted to have a function that takes in a number and initializes an empty array uh, of the, the size that you, is given by that number. I mean, speaking about arrays, okay, in pure functional programming, we, let's say then we're, it's going to be a, a vector. So we're going to take in a number n, and we're going to return a vector of a's of length n. Let's see. For my example, to make sense, I should be saying uh, we'll take in a number n and some default value of type a, which is we're going to fill this vector with. And then we're going to return a vector of a's of length n. I think this is called repeat, maybe, or something like that in Haskell for lists. Uh, <clears throat> anyhow, so this function you see that the return type, so how long that vector is, is computed, the type itself is determined by the input value. This is the part it takes a little getting used to. So you just have a function that says, I'm taking in an input. I'm going to call it n, okay? It's a natural number, let's say n, and, a, and another value of type a, and I'm going to return a vector of a's of that length n. So now the return type of this function actually mentions by name the input argument of the function. Okay, so, uh, and this, you know, from a programming perspective, this is actually pretty intuitive. It makes a pretty good sense. If you just kind of, again, think about C or something like that. I want to, C has a notation for arrays of length n. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't work very well. <laughs> you can create... Uh, local variables, you could say, oh, I want to have an int array of length 256 or something like that. That's fine. But it doesn't really work very well through f functions. You know, you can't really say, oh, I'm going to take in an array of length n and return another array of length n or something like that. That's not allowed in C. But imagine you had that capability. Imagine you had something that uh, you wanted to... Maybe you had some algorithm that you want to say, oh, I should only call this function with an array of odd size or something. I'm not quite sure you'd want to do that, but maybe, I don't know, maybe something like binary search or something, it's more handy to have it even or odd. It probably doesn't matter. But um, then you could say, oh, this function takes in uh, an int array of length two, you know, 2 to the n plus 1, if you want it to be odd, where n is some additional input argument. Okay, so anyway... It, it, it makes it's, makes pretty good... I mean, as a programmer, when I first started learning about this stuff, it's like, oh, yeah, it kind of makes... It's not crazy to want to have things like array types to tell you how big the array is. In fact, that'd be great. I mean, a lot of that would help a lot of C programming out. Uh, and, and 
And so that, that makes sense. And once you have that sort of thing, then you want functions that can, um, whose types can mention other input values like lengths of arrays and things like this. So that's kind of a very basic look at dependent types, but there's, there's a lot more to be said about it. And I'm on my short commute, I'm almost where I'm going, but let me say one more little thing. So in some form, in some approaches to verification, or even to programming, you might have heard of design by contract. That's some programming methodology where every time you write a method to a, to a, of some class or something, or just could just be a function, you, you essentially list pre and post conditions. You say, if, and they, they call this uh, assume guarantee, so assuming you call this function with, you know, three non-zero inputs and two non-empty lists or whatever, assuming some properties are true of my inputs, then this function guarantees that some properties will be true of the outputs. And, you know, in assume in, in design by contract, they, these things aren't generally being statically enforced. You know, it's not a compile time check that your pro program satisfies its contract, but the contract is still arguably very useful. You can use it for uh, runtime. You can use it for assertions, sort of runtime monitoring of your code to, to check every time the function's called at call sites. Oh, did I call my function with inputs that satisfy the required preconditions of the function? And then you could double check that, oh yes, when the function returns its output, yes, that does satisfy the post condition that the function's supposed to be guaranteeing holds. So, you know, that's this is all really good. And, and a, a lot of formal methods approaches use this kind of contract contractual uh, specification for functions. So there's a tool called Daphne out there, D-A-F-N-E, uh, that Rustin Leno, a Microsoft researcher, I think he, actually I'm not sure where he is now, sorry, Rustin, if you were to hear this. Uh, he's a researcher who did a lot of work on static checking for compile, uh, for, for errors. And uh, so anyway, so you can, uh, in Daphne, you write pre and post conditions for your functions. And then Daphne is going to try to statically check at compile time. It's going to check, well, if the input satisfies these preconditions and I inspect the code, and can I, can I confirm that, yes, the outputs are guaranteed to satisfy these post conditions? Obviously, that's totally awesome. Well, the connection, if you can, if you can do it. And the connection I wanted to make with dependent types is one very simple use of dependent types is for pre and post conditions. You could say, I've got a function, it takes in a raft of inputs, takes in a bunch of inputs, together with proofs that they satisfy some properties. So those are the preconditions. And then I produce a bunch of outputs, let's say, or a tuple of outputs or whatever it is, and some more proofs that those outputs satisfy various properties they might have or relational properties, you know, how, how are they supposed to be related to the inputs. Uh, so, you know, you have a factoring function or something, it's the outputs it returns are supposed to uh, multiply together to, to give you the input. And so that would be a, a proof that that function would produce. It would say, well, I take in a number n and I return a list of primes such that if you multiply all those primes, you get n, or primes and powers, or whatever it would be. So dependent types uh, let you express this kind of thing. Because you write, it, you write your function as saying, I take in some the input values, and I take in some proofs about them, proofs of properties about them. And so you write, you know, I take in x1, x2, x3, and I take in some proof of p 
of x1 and p of, of q of x2 and r of x3. You know, these p, q, and r I'm saying are some kind of properties you want to hold. And then you return a tuple. Now, you have to return a tuple that um, whose values, some of the values are actually um, dependent on the earlier values. And in, in type theory, they call this a sigma type. So it's, it's sort of like a pair type. You have a pair of a and a b. But actually, it's generalized to say, I've got, I've got a pair where the first thing has type A. Oh, and let's call it X. And the second thing has some type P of X. In other words, it's a proof about the first thing. It's a proof of some property P about the first component of the tuple. Um, and so with those kind of features, which are standard features of dependent typing, then you can write functions with their pre and post conditions. So you can sort of show, you can use dependent typing to write this sort of contractual, in this contractual style, some of your code. Uh, if you want to do that. Uh, and that's, in, in the type theory world, that's sometimes called internal verification because you write a function with a rich type that expresses some property about it. As opposed to writing a function with that just regular old boring types and then separately writing a proof about that function. That's so, sometimes called external verification. And Thorsten Altenkirch, a great researcher in type theory, has, I think I learned these terms from some 1990s lecture notes he had about internal and external verification in type theory or something like this. So uh, anyway, so dependent types, well, can be used actually for both of those things, but we're just now we're talking about what would be called internal verification, pre and post conditions. You write types for your functions that can, the types express more about the input-output behavior than you usually have. And that's how you verify something about the function. Okay, well, that's all I have for today for you. Thank you for listening.